Andy Media. Well, first we should point out that um, there's no no one's actually articulated a policy for banning Muslim migration. In fact, it's not altogether clear what banning Muslim migration means. Does it mean banning anyone who comes from a majority Muslim country? Does it mean banning people based on how they identify? Is there some sort of external test? So that means that there's a certain distraction about the question, which I think means it can become a cipher for all sorts of stuff. Um, and I, I just make that point to, to caution that you can't necessarily read this as saying that it would translate to support to a concrete proposal um, for such a for, for, for such a measure. That being said, it, it's clearly a, um, a a disturbing finding, and I think it illustrates the the, the danger that that um, Hansen represents at the moment. Um, in the nineties, the initial incarnation of Paul and Hansen was all about anti-Asian and um, anti-Indigenous racism and I think the anti-Asian the anti racism that she was proselytising back then was in some ways far more problematic for the Australian political class um, who knew that the future of Australian capitalism lay with integration in the Asian region. So there was a sense in which Hansen was sort of pushing against the tide. Now, of course, since 2001, we've seen the total um, restructure of both Australian domestic and foreign policy around the ideas of the war on terror. So there's been 15 years of anti-Asian, sorry, anti-Muslim rhetoric in Quite well in Australia and in allied countries. That means that there's a tremendous reservoir of this sentiment that um, is available out there. I think what this poll shows is that all of that um, effort over the past 15 years has had effects, which in some ways you would kind of expect it to. And what it means, I think, is that uh, Hansenism this time around will probably be a more stable and more long-lasting phenomenon than it was in the uh, 1990s. Sure. If we can pass it out in, I suppose, a little more detail, a little more carefully than some people will certainly have on, on social media. I mean, I've seen some people just deny the veracity of these figures at all. But on the one hand, we have 600,000 people who voted for One Nation. Obviously, these numbers uh, reflect a much greater uh, anti-Muslim sentiment. So can we t make the crude conclusion, for instance, that 49% of uh, Australians are racist or is it more complex, more nuanced uh, other than that? Well, it depends what you mean by racist, doesn't it? Um, as I said, this is an abstract argument at the moment. It's not like that there is a concrete proposal floating around to ban, to introduce a particular um, Islam, a particular kind of Islamophobic um, border protection policy. Were that to happen, I reckon you would expect um, expect the the findings to vary somewhat as the implications became more clear. So I, I, just, I think in some way that some ways this is just acting as a sort of Rorschach blot in which people are projecting their own insecurities. It doesn't necessarily follow that everyone who said yes, I'm for banning Muslim immigration is a hardcore far right. Um, Activist. Oh, as you said before, thirty-four percent of these people are Greens voters, so that suggests that they are quite confused about their attitudes. So I, I think we need to be careful about not assuming that these people are 
you know, hardened ideological racists so much as people who have Islamophobic ideas. Now, I'm not suggesting by that that we should simply accept their ideas, but um, I think one of the difficulties we have at the moment is the left is been on the defensive for so long that it's very easy for people to fall into anti-democratic responses, responses that simply say, okay, the vast majority of Australians are racists and therefore uh, we can't rely on getting majority support, for any, majority support for any progressive projects. And I think that's one of the dangers the left needs to uh, look out for at the moment. Another uh, dangerous reaction to the return of Hanson, the rise of populist racism, is almost a newfound respect for, for racist ideas. In your latest article for The Garden, you, for instance, you take issue with people like Margot Kingston, who older listeners may remember as one of the most high-profile campaigners against Hanson back in the 1990s. She's now calling for an effort to listen to racists, not lampoon them, to understand them, not combat their ideas and actions. Uh, her views, it seems to me, are in line with this dangerous new trend among a lot of a lot of so-called progressive thinkers, which says populists and racists need to be respected and debated in the public square, uh, not fought and defeated in the streets as in previous eras. Uh, what are your comments on this, what I would almost describe as a newfound liberal respect for, for racism and racist ideas? Yes, yeah, see, I think that these two dangers are the flip side of each other. On the one hand, we're seeing this um, hostility to democracy on much of the left, um, you can see it manifesting, for instance, in some of the arguments around the plebiscite, where leaving aside the specifics of the um, plebiscite on same-sex marriage, some of the arguments that are being mobilised against it on the left are fairly explicitly on the lines that plebiscites are bad because they give ordinary people a say and ordinary people have bad ideas and therefore we shouldn't be pandering to them. So that's one danger. But as you say, the flip side of it, the other side of that particular coin is a corresponding argument that says, okay, there are people out there who have these regressive ideas and we need to adapt to those people. If 48% or whatever it is of Australians are explicitly Islamophobic, then the left should simply say, well, perhaps there's something in this and, you know, we need to find a, a, um, a halfway house where we can meet these people in terms of their concerns. Now, this argument is often pitched along the lines that there is an economic basis for the insecurities that are being manifested in an Islamophobic, Islamophobic um, way. So it can sound like quite a progressive argument, but I guess the the point that I was trying to make in the Guardian piece today is that uh, that the way that one that the left needs to connect with these anxieties is not by um, adapting to racism, but simultaneously confronting racism while trying to put forward an anti-racist alternative that takes into account these economic insecurities and. I fear that these two arguments that we're seeing at the moment, the one that's explicitly anti-democratic and the other which is explicitly about um, <coughs> adapting to racism, are going to reinforce each other. We're going to see um, a left flip-flopping back and forth between those two arguments, both of which I think are fundamentally flawed. You've already touched on this very worrying imbalance in Australian politics at the moment, where on the one hand you have the return of Hanson, the rise of Islamophobic sentiment, continuing privations and oppression of Aboriginal people, the appalling treatment of asylum seekers and so on. The racist right is, I think, 
unmistakably on the march, yet the left, as you've said, is arguably in a weaker state now than it has been perhaps at any time in the last 70 years. How do you account for this weakness? And is there a connection between the rise of the populist right and, for instance, the decline of the Labor movement? Uh, I mean, that's a whole can of worms, isn't it? The, the question of how we account for the left's inability to, uh, to capitalise on the return of economic instability since the GFC. I think you know you could do an entire um, program on that. But yes, I mean, the shorter version is yes, there is definitely a connection. Had, were the Labor movement to be stronger, were there a populist left or indeed a, a, a working class left of some magnitude in this in this country, that would be an alternative um, pole of attraction, an alternative series of explanations for things like, I don't know, unemployment or social frustrations or whatever that would be, would, that would attract um, some people who might otherwise be attracted to um, the Hansonites. But I think we have to start... Um, with where we're at, the left is very small and very fragmented. One of the difficulties about this argument about adapting to the Hansonites is it neglects the kind of analysis of where we're at. I mean, with the left so small at the moment, the key thing, I think, is to start to mobilise the people who are most progressive, the people who are willing to fight back around progressive ideas, and that's quite obviously not the Islamophobes, it's the people who are opposed to Islamophobia. Uh, one of the points I tried to make in the piece today is that the left needs to uh, make um, to do a much better job in mobilising oppressed communities themselves, specifically um, the people of um, Muslim faith or communities that are, are being targeted by this wave of Islamophobia, and there's no possibility of doing that once you start adapting to Islamophobia yourself. I mean, I think the left needs to make it clear that we see Islamophobia as a huge problem, not just for Muslims, but for the progressive movement as a whole. Because if we allow ourselves to be divided like this, um, well, we're all going to suffer the consequences. It is, as uh, as you've said, a, a whole other discussion. I appreciate it. it's a big and complex question, but if we could explore that perhaps a little further, the, the weakness of the left. I mean, one of the things that's intriguing about the situation is that compared to the United States and Britain, for instance, you have the rise of figures like Donald Trump, the populist racist riot, but uh, also, on the other hand, uh, the rise of the Jeremy Corbyn phenomenon and Bernie, Bernie Sanders, for instance. So there is a, a, a difference, isn't there, with, with Australia in terms of you're not seeing that, uh, if you like, concomitant rise of a populist left alongside uh, the rise of Hansenism. Yeah, and look, obviously there's some specific issues there. I don't think anyone very much um, predicted the Corbyn phenomenon. Um, I think that in some respects has to do with specific issues about the nature of the Labor Party and the Labor movement in, in, in the UK. The comparison with the US is interesting, but I mean, one of the things about Australia is that the, the social crisis in Australia is nowhere near as deep as that across Europe or um, in the US. So that's one factor. Also, I think that we had that populist moment um, a decade or so earlier with the anti-corporate movement, which then gave rise or was always connected with the rise of the Australian Greens. And I think the Greens had had the potential to become 
the focus point for that sentiment, that anti-corporate sentiment and then the anti-war sentiment that emerged after the Iraq um, invasion. And I think it increasingly looks like the Greens are taking a different approach and are becoming more and more um, focused on moving to the mainstream and seeing themselves as a, um, a party of... Or a party of parliament rather than a, part, a party of the outside. Mm. So that, I think, puts the Australian situation... Well, it means the Australian situation is quite difficult, I think. And, um, you know, these are the... This is a situation we're, um, we're facing, I think, in some ways it is quite a difficult situation. Sometimes I like to end interviews by asking my guests to, to look into their crystal ball. I mean, you've, you've touched on a few factors that will shape the future, the, the shift to the right, arguably, of the Greens and so on. I mean, how do you see things panning out generally in, in this next term of, of Parliament? Are we going to see increasing popularity for, for Hanson ideas? The Greens, it seems to me, are not really pushing forwards and not uh, going backwards. Their, their support is, is really in a, in a stable situation. But generally, how do you see things playing out in the next 12 months or two years, particularly with uh, economic uncertainty at the clouds of potentially a recession on the horizon? Uh, look, I think the one thing we can be certain about is uncertainty. Uh, that Parliamentary politics in Australia has probably never been more unstable than it is at the moment. The extraordinary situation um, that the Liberal government is in at the moment where the, the consistent white anting of the Turnbull administration I think will continue and I think we would expect this government, which has no clear direction at all, and um, a very, only the vaguest idea of who its constituency is. I think we can expect to see it to lurch from crisis to crisis, and that at least potentially opens up um, possibilities for the left. I mean, we are not talking about a conservative government with a clear agenda and uh, a mandate for carrying out sort of swinging attacks on the labour movement. On the contrary, I think we're looking at a, a government that is going to be clinging by its fingernails to survival. That being said, um, as I, I said before, I think that the um, it, it's possible that the Hansonite version 2.0 will be more stable than the earlier version. I think it's quite possible that they might emerge as a sizable party to the right of the Liberals. Um, possibly a kind of race, explicitly racist adjunct, adjunct to the Liberals. And I think we might possibly see a more explicitly fascist um, right emerging um, outside the Hansonites as well. So we have a situation of uh, a sizable populist right orienting to Paul and Hanson and then uh, something much more like explicit, more, much more explicitly fascist right outside the Hansonites. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting and challenging times to come.